gentlemen, welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my right is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Hey, Sebastian. How's it going? Pretty good, and you? We had some delicious pulled pork, courtesy of my wife, Petra. We uh, got here late. Both me and Bash Sebastian were enjoying a good video game briefly. Um, but here's the deal. Today's not a reaction video. Today is a serious topic, and so we're going to jump right into it. And it's something heady, something kind of philosophical. Um, which, if you've ever heard me speak on anything philosophical, almost every time I say it on the podcast, I hate philosophical topics. Not only because I am not that smart, but also because philosophical topics end up dividing people where they shouldn't be, and they almost always avoid scripture because if you bring in scripture, it's not considered philosophical or smart or whatever else. Um, we are not going to avoid scripture, but you will hear us give a lot of um, assertions here in the topic. Today's topic is this question. It's a big question. In fact, within our podcast, uh, Theodore in particular, um, we had a big falling out briefly. If you saw him skip out of the podcast um, for like a good portion. Uh, now he's married, so that's why he's not here today. So this is not like a, he's currently have a problem. But Theodore and us had a pretty big debate over this exact question. Does God cause man to sin? And let's set up the problem. Sebastian is actually the mastermind of today's agenda, so I'm going to keep looking at him. Um, and if you ever want to interject here, Sebastian, please do. Okay. Sebastian is known as the man behind the book because he's currently got two books and then a bunch of stuff off screen that you can't see. So we are going to be discussing historical Christian perspectives and a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but the problem that we set up is this. And if you're a Christian or you're a familiar with Christianity at any rate, you've probably made these connections. And if not, we're going to make them for you. Sin. In case you're not familiar, sin is the, the concept of rebelling against God. You've probably heard of original sin if you're a Christian or a Christian adjacent, and that is when Adam and Eve, the first two humans, were on earth and created. They originally did not sin. They were perfect in their design. It doesn't mean that they were perfect like in the abstract as far as they were as good as God, um, but they were perfect in their design. God designed them to be a certain way, and they were exactly that way. However, they rebelled against God at behest of the serpent or Satan or whatever you exactly interpret that to mean. Um, they were tempted to eat of a particular fruit that was in their garden of paradise that would give them the ability to discern what's good from what's bad. And that is a, a thing given only to God. It doesn't really matter exactly what it is mm -hmm. because any rebellion against God is considered sin. Sin is just another word for um a trespass against God, rebelling against him, disobeying God. And if you disobey God, you become a disobeyer of God, meaning you will continue to disobey God in many things. And so when Adam first sinned, every single one of his children was now a disobeyer of God. And then he also became a disobeyer of God by nature, a sinner by nature. And God being perfect in righteousness will not allow sin to exist forever. So he puts up with it for a time. That's why Adam and Eve didn't immediately die, but they did eventually die in body. And then in the very end, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the concept of hell, but God punishes those who disobey him, who hate God in a place out not good, right? He punishes it to show his justice and he punishes evil because God is perfectly good. So anything that's against God is by nature evil, even if it's one degree off of God. And the problem with evil also is that like we just described, Sin doesn't just stay little, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's why God doesn't allow corruption in the new heavens and the new earth that are coming, uh, nor in his kingdom in heaven. All that to say, the Bible 
is often the people take that concept of sin and like run with it really far you might have heard before that because god can't even look at sin um, he had to turn away from jesus on the cross because jesus bore all the sin mm-hmm. in the world and then the father had to look away because it was too much um i it's in songs that i have sung that i still enjoy even though i disagree with that point mm-hmm. nowhere on in the biblical narrative does god turn away um there, Jesus cries out on the cross, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, which is what people interpret as God turning away from Jesus. Um, but that's really just a quotation of a psalm. Mm-hmm. And so we don't believe God actually forsook him. Of course, he didn't because he was raised from the dead and all the rest, right? And Jesus isn't wrong. Equally, Jesus bore sin and saw sin. And, and God sees sin when he punishes sin. So all that to say, that concept of God not being able to see sin or even you know touch sin or whatever else is totally wrong. It's just God's ultimate design for heaven is going to be sinless, and that is why he punishes sin. It's not that he can't stand it for a little while. It's just that he won't put up with it for long. That's all. And long in God's terms are much longer than, than our terms. Uh, so the question then becomes, okay, so God doesn't like sin, right? Sin is bad. Uh-huh. How did it come about? Because traditionally, we would say that God is all powerful, right? He's Uh able to do whatever he wants. Nothing is out of his control. And so if there's something that God doesn't like and it currently exists and he's able to do whatever he wants, why isn't it gone? Why did it ever come about to begin with? I'm going to pass it to you, Sebastian. Uh, There are a couple ways to get around this. I'm going to pitch you one. One is that God isn't actually all powerful. He didn't even make everything, right? That that, um, this is like the... Zoroastrian, another religion belief that there's one big evil God and one big good God and that they're both at odds fighting each other. And so the evil God is responsible for all the evil things and he's just as powerful and also was always there just like the always the, the good God is and he was always there. So they're both equivalently powerful and that's the explanation for evil. Um, of course, the biblical narrative uh-huh. says otherwise. Exactly, exactly. So if you haven't seen it already, the problem we're going to tackle, the reason why we're talking about sin so much is, is God behind this all? We're going to talk about different approaches here in how to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Is God the cause? Is he to blame for the evil that humans do? We describe evil is. We are going to now touch quickly on Zoroastrianism. Actually, not Zoroastrianism, open theism. Well, Jonathan just met a Zoroastrian recently. I was like, wow, I think this is the only one in existence. One of our mutual were, friends, Jonathan. Yeah, I didn't know there was any still remaining outside of India, but... Well, I'd say the, the first concept is really easily refuted. So before we get to open theism, mm-hmm. I'll just slam dunk Zoroastrianism. It, clearly, Zoroastrianism is not Christianity. <laughs> um, so different. And if you read the Bible, um, you'll see that God creates everything. So everything that there is, God created, except for God himself was always there. So he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, as Genesis 1 mm-hmm. says. He created all the angels. He created Satan. And he created the earth and everything in it, including humans. So none of the things of the world, whether spirit, physical, or indivisible, rulers, dominions, authorities, every authority is under God, as uh, first uh, Colossians says, Colossians 2 says. So you can go to Scripture and see everywhere that God is, in Christianity, of course, sovereign over everything. So... It's not true that there is an equally big Satan and an equally big God, and they're mm-hmm. duking it out. God is the creator of Satan. He's bigger than Satan. He easily wins. It's not a competition. And therefore, the blame is still on him for the sin in this case. Like, you have to somehow otherwise justify it. So then you go 
to this concept what you were going ahead sebastian and that is open theism what is open theism sebastian the idea that god does not really comes down to god does not know the future why because humans are autonomous beings and therefore god cannot control us and thus cannot know the future right that really is the ultimate core of open theism and it is a very strange belief i encountered here in, in the us for better or for worse and this is my hope as we're going to also talk about other systems denominations within christianity my hope is that we can all hold hands here lutherans reformed roman catholics orthodox and all all the range all the range that you can find of a traditional christianity mm-hmm. we all reject this idea because scripture is clear that god ordains all things we can be we can disagree on how he does it but he clearly knows the future because he invented he created time right and prophesies christ you know we all know isaiah 53 we talked about how christ was uh, crucified and suffered the under suffered took upon himself the wrath of god he was pierced for our iniquities mm-hmm. and and he bore our transgressions actually it's the other way around but you get the point all of that is prophecy therefore god knows the future so right off the bat we can take out that position right and and that's i think if you encounter open theists or open theist kind of debates um they do get around God being responsible for evil because he didn't know what he was getting into. He thought, he's kind of a dumb God, he thought he was making perfect humans, um, and then, uh uh-oh, things got out of control, and now he's doing the best he can with what happened. And honestly, as much as it's a rare belief, um, officially, it's a pretty common, I think, understanding for Christians who just don't know any better, because they read the fall, and they're like, oh, God didn't, you know, that that wasn't his plan, because it's bad, and God's not bad, so therefore, God didn't know that was gonna happen. But if you take that to its logical extreme, like Sebastian just explained, you wouldn't be able to have prophecy because if God doesn't know what's going to happen, if like the will of man is truly like independent of God and he doesn't know what mankind is going to do in the future, um, then he wouldn't be able to prophesy things like the death of Jesus or any of the prophecies in the Old Testament are new. So we know that God does prophesy and therefore he must know the future and therefore he's, it's, open theism is not true. Um, now, open theists have a couple different weird arguments. This isn't really an episode about open theism, but just needless to say, it's pretty well refuted in the Bible. And like Sebastian listed, even um, cults that we would reject as having the gospel anymore, like Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholics, they are from a Christian tradition. And so therefore, all regular Christian traditions reject open theism explicitly because of the problem we just said, that it rejects prophecy, it, it rejects the all-powerfulness of God, and therefore... It's just wrong. So that is not a legitimate way around this problem of mankind sinning and, and God being good. Okay, so I think so far what we have is we have tossed out the idea God equal to Satan. Mm-hmm. As some people have that perception, it's 50-50. Yep. Out of the picture because God is in charge of the universe as scripture reveals. And as we, as I hope we all believe, in Christianity that God is all-powerful and is able to save so and he brings salvation alone we have also rejected open theism meaning God can know the future he decrees the future how he goes about it we might disagree on but just making sure we're all on the same we're all on the same page and 
also, I mean, should we? Uh, I, I would say let's just throw Pelagianism out as well, meaning we don't have the, just to get it out too, we don't, for Christians here, we don't have the inborn capacity to reach out to God on our own. All denominations, I would say, traditional denominations would disagree with that. We are fully reliant on God for our salvation. Meaning, I mean, it's kind of a semantics thing, but meaning that uh, when Adam sinned and caused all mankind to be rebellious by nature, mm-hmm. he did just that. He caused all mankind to be rebellious by nature. Pelagians, after a guy in the, the old pre-medieval times, um, Pelagianism says that he, mankind, is born neutral and isn't rebellious by nature and therefore can choose to perfectly obey God on his own. He doesn't require God to rescue him. Um, all Christianity rejects that too for many reasons. Most of the many scriptures you can cite uh, that say that all mankind has fallen short or all mankind has sinned because of Adam. So like Romans 3.21, for example, which says, for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. So just basic straight refutation of Pelagianism there. If you are a biblical Christian, you reject all these things we've talked about so far. All right. So far so good. This brings us to the big issue at hand. So the other ones are pretty tossed out of hand. I mean, there are communities that believe in open theism and Pelagianism and the equal powers theory, whatever, but usually they're not very well studied or they're like fringe because they don't have very good arguments. This next one is not fringe. It's a pretty big faction. I would say it's the biggest faction in Christianity, bigger than what me and Sebastian hold to, and that is this concept of free will. And so, Sebastian, I'll leave it to you to explain exactly what they mean by free will. Sure. So, pretty much, essentially, with free will, humans have the capacity, assisted by the grace of God, this is particularly with salvation, to choose between good and evil. Not on your own accord, not from your own goodness, like Pelagius would say, but by the grace of God, you can either choose salvation or you can reject it and go into hell forever you have the agency to do so it is not as extreme as open theism as as strange as it might sound but specifically it is relevant for salvation as what i just described to you you can either choose to repent believe in christ or you can reject it i would say it really comes down to to that and a it is problematic. I do have one book that talks about also on the fall, and you'll see why it is relevant when it comes to to sin. It's from Timothy Ware. This is normally introduced to people that are converting to orthodoxy. I would like to say I am not converting to orthodoxy. <laughs> good. I was like, this is a good book to have. It's always recommended. So I was like, I want to know what the orthodox believes. So let's go to the source. Timothy Ware, he is a bishop. An Anglican convert to Orthodoxy. He's pretty old now. I think he's still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. And I mean, he, he's English. He, he's not Russian, so it's easy to get his material. Yeah. And I do want to cite on the free will because it is a method that Orthodox and Catholics use to explain how man could choose to rebel against him. And also it applies to salvation, as I just touched mm-hmm. on that. God gave Adam free will, the power to choose between good and evil, and it therefore rested with Adam either to accept the vocation set before him or to refuse it. 
He refused it. Instead of continuing along the path marked out for him by God, he turned aside and disobeyed God. Adam's fall consisted essentially in his disobedience of the will of God. He set up his own will against the divine will, and so by his own act, he separated himself from God. As a result, a new form of existence appeared on earth, that of disease and death. By turning away from God, who is immortality and life, humans put themselves in a state that was contrary to nature, and this unnatural condition led to an inevitable disintegration of their being and eventually to physical death. The consequences of Adam's disobedience extend to all his descendants. I mean, pretty, pretty standard afterwards in the end. And right off the bat, I do want to say that we have little to no information on the nature of Adam. So it's right. interesting to philosophize and discuss on that. But rather, the point of me citing this is that just as Adam had supposedly the free will to choose between good and evil, likewise, we are in the same condition as Adam. Yes, we are sinful, clearly, as any person who holds to traditional free will would say, but we also have the capacity to choose between good and evil. Right. We can only be saved by the grace of God, but we can still choose between good and evil. So just to be clear, this is the, their position, not our yes, position. Yes, we, <laughs> we do not hold this. And uh, uh, the the first reaction I have to this is it is just Pelagianism, the heresy we just talked about, one step removed. And that is Pelagians say that you have the ability to choose between right and wrong, to so choose life. And that's the choose life line is from the Bible, right? Um, but you had that from birth. And these free will people say you don't actually have it from birth. You have it for whatever moment God gives you. God gives you some moment in your life or a period of time or whatever where he enables your heart to suddenly be neutral again. So you're born evil because we all agree you're born evil. But then at some point, God makes you neutral. And they say this because they assert that if mankind has free will, like we just described, mm-hmm. like we just described Adam had, um, and therefore free will meaning it is their choice to do good and evil, not God's choice, then when they choose to do evil, it wasn't God's fault because it was them, not God. Okay, I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, so what this, what this view tries to do, right, is tries to get around the problem of God not liking sin and being all-powerful and allowing sin, right? They, they say that God doesn't cause the sin, man causes the sin, and God gave man the free will. And therefore, when somebody goes and kills their neighbor, it's not God's fault, it's that guy's fault, because that guy had free will to go and do this thing, this evil thing. Um, a couple problems that atheists even point out, and Sebastian, you were even quoting a debate between um, a, I think, terrible apologist, I don't mean to just be shooting shots at fellow Christians, but some Christians should stop um, Frank Turek is a Christian who I do not believe is a very good apologist um, and, and just does not use biblical terminology. A very philosophical guy, kind of like William Lane Craig. Um, I think you should just stop. Um, I, yes, God uses imperfect sticks all the time to, to call people to Christ. I'm sure there's people that have actually come to Christ from Frank Turek, but I don't like him um, as an apologist. And he was battling some atheists. You know better than me. And the atheists called him on the problem of evil. Yes. And actually, my hope is any atheist watching it's like this is a pretty big problem with the idea of free will yes 
uh, Frank Turek said in this debate, I forget I forget exactly the name of the atheist at this moment, but if you look at Frank Turek debate, you can find it on YouTube easily. Uh, Frank Turek asserted, God gave us free will, and therefore we cause sin. Well, the atheist noticed, wait, who gave man free will then? Oh yeah, God. So God is still the person behind the sin, in the, the atheist asserts. Right. And Frank Turek was like, like uh, tried to respond, but didn't really know how to respond at that point. And that is a very fair question, because all you're doing is you're just taking a step back to the inevitable you know, dilemma that we're trying to tackle here. Right. That is God the one who is behind the sin, who has the cause, who is uh, blameworthy mm-hmm. for the sin? Free will, all it does is you just delay by a few seconds the ultimate conclusion that, uh, or that the getting at the problem. Right, because again, just to, to make sure you follow the logic, um, if God is, we all agree, like Frank Turek and others that believe in, in the free will theory, they believe that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, so he knows the future. So when he gave man free will, he knew that mankind would sin and rebel and do the evil things. And therefore, he could have not given man free will and avoided them doing the evil things or stopped them or whatever else, but he didn't. And therefore, he is the ultimate cause of evil because the people do the evil things and God God made them and gave them the prevention and gave them their natures and set up things in a way that they did end up doing the evil. And so free will doesn't really get around this this same problem of evil, and that is that God is allowing evil and God is not evil. So, um, the, the, and I'd say the other person, so there's that problem, right? It doesn't really accomplish what it's trying to do. And uh, this is the way that people defend the free will argument. They say that God is still good in these scenarios because he actually desires free will more than righteous behavior, righteous things happening. And they'll, so they'll say, right, um, for love to be love, it has to be free. And it's not real love if it's not freely given and whatever else, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's, it's sounds, I guess, flowery. It's just not biblical. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Says who? Right. Well, it's not biblical. Like, none of this is found in the Bible. Fine. Put it in the comments. If you have a section of the Bible that's, that's, talks flowerly about how much God loves free will or that how love has to be free um, to be real. I, I don't think you'll find it considering we've, we've examined the scriptures ourselves, but you know, I'm willing to be corrected if you have it in the comments. Mm-hmm. So they say, without biblical backing, that God requires love to be free and therefore he desires free will more than righteousness. And so even though he knows the unrighteousness is going to happen, he needs free will more than he needs righteousness and therefore he is allowing the sin but he's actually overall good because he's getting something better he's getting the free will Um, but again we challenge you find that in the bible because we have many 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 scriptures about god loving righteousness and hating unrighteousness and all that and none about him loving free will or freely given love or whatever else there's free will offerings i suppose in the new testament but mm-hmm. that free will just means it's not dictated like um, there's the dictated offerings you must give and free will is that you could choose to give um so that's a t- kind of offering but god also demands kinds of things too so like it's clearly not a requirement of god's that big of a deal and then equally um yeah i mean it's good to get love so there's there's things about people choosing to love god but it's not it doesn't emphasize in the free will or any of that so again challenge in the comment section to find it um so not only does this 
view of free will not really accomplish the problem of evil because evil still happens, but it also is completely unbiblically based, and it has God valuing free will over righteousness, which is just not the nature of God, as the Bible says. Okay, Michael, Sebastian, if you're so smart and you've debunked uh, Zoroastrianism, the whole 50-50, Satan and God are equal, if you've debunked open theism so flippantly, if you've debunked... um, Free will? Free will so easily. I thought there was another one in there. Pelagianism so easily. Um, What are you proposing? How do you get around the problem of evil? Um, Good question. We get around the problem of evil the way that Christians for centuries, millennia, since it started the church, have gotten around the problem of evil, and that is by essentially addressing it head-on, not constructing philosophical statements around it, just addressing the plain truth, which a lot of people don't like, which is why people come up with systems to work around it, but this is shown evidently in Scripture. We're going to quote profuse amounts of Scripture in a second, but I want to let Sebastian justify this view we're about to describe to you as not being new. It's not even like new in historical terms, i.e. like it's not just from Western Europe or something like that. We want to show you quotes of this view that we're about to describe being given by not even just Europeans, but also Persians, um, people speaking Arabic, uh, and whoever else, uh, Western, also Western Europeans, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, they're there, but all past. It's, it's more accessible to get uh, people from yeah. the Roman Empire or post-Roman Europe. So one of the... I cited this man before doing our epic summary Two of 2000 yes 2000 i mean it's pretty impressive 2000 years and two hours that's pretty it's pretty good and timothy abagda patriarch of the nestorian church putting aside the strange differences that people may have in nestorianism the question is is what he is saying correct does it have any substance in the year 780 790 timothy the patriarch has a debate with the Muslim caliph uh, al-Mahdi in Baghdad, which used to be the capital. Baghdad used to be an important center in the Mm -hmm. world. Unfortunately, it is not anymore. It's a very (laughs) sad place. Yes. And anyway, they are debating this. So just as Charlemagne is being crowned emperor of the Romans in Europe, and Jingjing is erecting the Xi'an steel, Jing Jing. Mm. Yeah, Adam in okay. Chinese. Yes. I don't know how you get there from Adam Jing Jing. All of this is happening, just some context. France is gigantic. And China is thriving with its Christianity. Actually, I mean, it's going to explode soon after. And in Baghdad, this debate is going on between the, in this case, a representative of Christianity and the a living descendant of Muhammad because the caliph was a descendant of Muhammad, so embodying Islam. This is after a much conquest, and the Muslim empire spread from Spain all the way into uh, Afghanistan and Central Asia, or, soon it, or it would soon will. So during this conversation, the patriarch asked the caliph, as they're talking about the will, the nature of the will, who is stronger, um, is God stronger or did the Jews thwart God's plan when they killed Jesus? Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is actually exactly what comes up when we talk, talk about to free a- will. Right? Yeah, free will mm-hmm. to atheists and whatnot. So was God surprised? Did God say, say oh no, he killed my son. What am I going to do now? Well, the patriarch asked this. Now regarding the nature of Adam and the plan of God versus the intention of man. 
Did God wish Adam to go out of paradise or not? If he wished to drive him out of paradise, why would Satan be blamed? Who simply helped to do the will of God in his driving Adam from paradise. On the other hand, if God did not wish Adam to go out of paradise, how is it that he, the will of God became weak and was overcome, while the will of Satan became strong and prevailed? How can he be God if his will has been completely overcome? The fact that Satan and Adam sinned against the will of God does not affect the divinity of God and does not show him to be weak and deficient. And the fact that God had willed Satan to fall from heaven and Adam to go out of paradise does not absolve Satan and Adam from blame and censure. And the fact that they did not sin to accomplish the will of God, but to accomplish their own will, are a good analogy to the case of Jesus Christ. He should not indeed be precluded from being God, nor should he be rendered weak and deficient in strength by the fact that the Jews sinned, but not by his will, and that in their insolence they crucified him, and the fact that the Christ wished to be crucified and die for the life, resurrection and salvation of all, should not exempt the Jews from hell and curse. In an analogy, in a more simple in more simple terms, he he says uh, he later compares it to to the to Mahdi the Caliph. Oh Caliph, if you wish to tear down one of your houses, and some I'm paraphrasing, some hooligan comes and burns it down, are you going to thank the man for burning down your house, or are you going to punish him? Yeah, I'm going to make sure he suffers a lot, says the Caliph. Exactly. The intention, your intention to tear down the house and the intention of the man burning down your house are very different. Yes, same action. Mm -hmm. The house was destroyed and you wanted to get rid of, but the intention was very different. Likewise, as you can see here, this he applies this analogy to the situation between sin and God. Where you see the most wicked thing done in history, the crucifixion, the, the murder of the only innocent human, also God, alive at the time, Jesus Christ. God had an intention. He had the intention to be crucified, to atone for our sins. And the Jews, they crucified him, but their intention was, we hate this guy, let's get rid of him. Right. Same action, two different intentions. You see how it is sin to murder, yet God used sin to accomplish the salvation of all who repent and believe in him. Yes, and I think key here, so just so you understand the argument, we are saying that just like we, we established in the very beginning and all Christians believe, God is indeed all-powerful. He controls all things. So when people sin, we are, we are facing the problem of sin head-on. We're saying, yes, God knew and planned for man to sin. When he created Adam in the very beginning, he planned for Adam to fall. When Satan rebelled, he planned for Satan to rebel. None of this took God by surprise. And so he knows the sins that happens and fully embraces the fact that they're happening to accomplish things. So he's not acting behind after the fact, right? He's not, he's not behind the eight ball thinking, okay, well, okay, if Adam's going to sin because I gave him free will, then I better concoct a huge plan to deal with that and eventually have the redemption of mankind. No, God... Jesus Christ is described as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was always planned to be the redeemer of mankind. And therefore, God was always planning for Adam to sin. And God's plans always prevail. So that, that means, you could say, that the people that sin aren't 
really sinning at all because isn't sinning rebelling against God? And if that was God's plan for them to rebel, then they really are obeying God when they rebel because he needed them to rebel for his plan to work. And therefore, you can't blame them. Which is what the Caleb is saying. Which is, yeah, which is what the Caleb is saying. So you hear the justification from this guy, Timothy, in Baghdad. He says, you can still blame the one who sins because they didn't sin to appease God. They didn't, if the heart behind their, their rebellion against God wasn't to obey God in sinning. Their heart was to do evil, right? The heart of those who killed Jesus was not to um, slay the, the lamb and then therefore redeem the world. Their heart was to kill God's chosen one and destroy him for the base of the planet. And same with Adam. His heart was not to enact this grand story of redemption. Oh, yes, Lord, I will suffer the punishment. His plan was to become like God and to, to follow his wife and becoming like God. So you can still punish the evil um, while saying that God um, planned it from the beginning, was sovereign over it, and actually ordained these evil things to happen. And then what this might cause you to do, and this is where we're just going to go straight to Scripture, I think, unless you want to go to God's talk before I do that. I do. Okay, go to God's talk. This okay. is another quotation. Just okay. another show that um, this view, what we're describing right now, is not novelty. It's not just something that we cooked up. It's not even something that the church cooked up 500 years ago. It's something that the church had for millennia. This is also around this time period, actually a little bit later, late 800s. Again, very important time in Christian history. Gottschalk of Orbe, a Saxon man, Carolingian Empire, after the Carolin a little bit after Carolin uh, Charlemagne. He cites St. Augustine, actually. It is omnipotent God himself who prepares the will so that we will and who completes by working with us what he begins by working. For in beginning he works so that we will. Who works with those who will in bringing the work to completion. On account of this the apostle says, I am sure that he who produces the good work in you will bring it to completion for the day of Jesus Christ. He, therefore, works without us so that we will. But when we will, and will so that we act. He works with us, but without his working, so that we will, or without his working with us when we will. We can do nothing toward the good works of piety. What is this getting at? God is behind all the works in human nature. I cite this to explain that it has been actually more traditional to believe that God is behind all works. He is behind all the good that we do as Christians, as believers. So he established that here by citing Augustine that he is the one who brings salvation. He is the behind all the good works and we carry them out. And at the same time, you know, for those who are uh, not redeemed by God and don't have the spirit working in them, again, the work of God, making us will to do good. For those who are not saved, He says, but the salvation concerning them is also said, but the salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. Although to the contrary, it says concerning the reprobate, salvation is far from sinners. And for this reason, none of them is, of course, saved with eternal salvation, but absolutely only the elect people to those to whose lot he, of course, belongs about whom the Lord says he who believes and is baptized will be saved and he who perseveres to the end will be saved. You remember that I said, determined and distinguished somewhere more clearly than daylight, as I think. How much these two kinds of salvation differ, that is, with the Apostle also helping us here and saying, the Lord will set me free from every evil deed and will save me in this heavenly kingdom, in which it is certainly clear that no reparate is going to be saved. 
He's talking about obviously contrasting the idea of free will that you can save yourself by repenting on your own, of course, by the aid of Christ, but then you can also lose your salvation. That's one kind. And then there's also another kind of salvation in which God fully is giving salvation to his elect. For God saves by the salvation those upon whom he has mercy in his great goodness, not those whom he hardens with no iniquity. He nonetheless does both by his equally pious and just will and by his most omnipotent power. For the apostle does not save. He has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he does not will, but he has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. Hence, those who want the word of the apostle, God wills all men to be saved, to be understood in general, both for the elect and for the reprobate. But he saves the elect because they themselves will to be saved. And on the contrary, he does not save the reprobate because they do not will to be. Can most easily be refuted by one syllable by which he said, he hardens whom he wills. For God truly by no means willed to save in eternal salvation those whom he on that account, as scripture testifies, justly hardens because he wills, not because he does not will. Here, let them wake up if they can, and thus far have not been afraid to believe this, and are also not afraid even now. So, he's going to work on his writing. Got yes. kind of circular there, but... Yes, it's the fashion in Spanish. You're supposed to write that way too, so I don't mind. I don't mind the okay. style. I guess in English it sounds, sounds kind of awkward, but... Um, yeah, God did not say to him who pleases me. He says, eh, I will be gracious to whom I will be pleased, not to him who pleases him. God is behind the salvation of humans. Likewise, for the reprobate, those who are not saved, God has willed these people to be, eh, to pour out his wrath on these individuals. Right. And the reason why I'm citing Godchild on all of this is to show that this perspective is not brand new. Billy Graham, actually, I don't even think Billy Graham will leave. Is he? He's reformed? Armenian, I'm sure. Yeah, he okay. Is. <laughs> okay. It's brand new. John Calvin had invented, but the idea that God is behind the will of humans is, in, is not a novel, it's not a, a modern invention. And it's also Bible based. So we're going to do the. The philosophy thing where we create a philosophical proof with a couple points that we all agree on but um to save my own bile and then not throw up all over the screen uh we're gonna base it all in scriptures every point we make with this philosophical proof we're about to make um is gonna be based in scripture and so you'll be able to follow us and you'll agree with each point of scripture hopefully if you're a christian you'll agree with each point of scripture we cite and therefore agree with the argument at the end um, because like we said all these other views of how you deal with, with man sinning and, and God being good um, have problems with them, and either they're not biblical or they don't work or, or both. Um, so we're going to walk through this view, this one that was just expressed by God's talk, the ones that was expressed by that guy Timothy from Baghdad, and that's expressed by the Apostle Paul and Scripture in general. First point of the proof. We've already established it in all the other views, but that God is all-powerful. He knows the end from the beginning Sebastian, there's a couple places you might go for this. One of them is Isaiah. Um, you can paraphrase or you can directly quote, but Isaiah has a statement about God being all-powerful. It's all throughout Scripture. Isaiah just has some good ones. Yeah, in the trial of false gods, one that unfortunately a lot of people skip. I don't think intentionally, but it just sounds sounds pretty intense. And when God says, I am God and there is no other, I am God and there's none like me. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. I declare the end from the beginning, 
from ancient times what is still to come. He does as he pleases. He just, God just, I'm, I'm done quoting, say for exact, he says, uh, I will do all that I want to accomplish. I declare history from start to end until the return of Jesus Christ. He is in charge of time. He is in charge of events, mm. every single event in human history. Why? Because he invented time. He created it. He also has decreed. He has spoken all the things that are going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar n noticed this as he was grazing like a happy cattle. And then this eventually... Is Daniel? Yeah. From Daniel, yeah. And then realized, he says, my sanity came to me. Okay, meaning I was insane before. Now I realized some profound truth. I wonder what this truth is. He looked up to heavens, praised God for quite a bit. And then he says, the Lord, paraphrasing, does as he pleases in the heavens above and the earth below. No one can ward off his hand and ask him, what have you done? Meaning God does as he's just said, as he pleases, whatever God wants to accomplish, he will accomplish. As he said, he said, I will do all that I please. And then I wonder. Oh, is it there? I think that was it. That was it. Yeah, that was whatever. It. So we're establishing point number one. We already agreed that all the Christians agree with this point, anyways, and that is that God is all powerful. Again, just a refutation of the open theist. So we know that God is indeed all powerful. He knows the future, and therefore the problem of sin is set up. Right? That God is all powerful and he hates sin. I'm not even going to prove that he hates sin. That's just another. Inherent proof here that God hates sin. We all know God hates sin. That's the definition of sin. So God is all powerful. He knows the end from the beginning and he hates sin. Establish it with scripture. Two, we cannot blame God for sin. I'm going to quote one place here, but I think we, we know that God is good. And that's said throughout scripture and sin is bad. It's the nature of disobeying God, disobeying what is good. And therefore, um, we cannot say that God sins or that God is bad, which is the problem we're trying to avoid here. And we know this, again, from that logical conclusion, but also, here's James 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So, here we have James explicitly telling us. So we can, we can conclude that we can't blame God, but here's, here's James explicitly saying, that when you're tempted, you cannot say that God is tempting you because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So we've got God is all powerful. He's not tempting anyone. He's not the one sin. We can't blame him for sin. The people, and James gives part of our proof here away, but that each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own desires. Okay, so we've got God is all powerful. He can't be blamed for sin. Sin exists, right? Romans 3.21, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Sin clearly exists. Um, and we know that God is, is well aware of this sin. In fact, there's some scenarios where God um, explicitly ordains the sin, just, just um, buffeting the point number one here is Job, the beginning of Job. Um, the Lord is sitting up in heaven, and he says, um, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answers the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Again, this is a direct quote from scripture. Notice here also that Satan is in the presence of the Lord. Satan, clearly an evil thing. God looking at him and allowing him in heaven. It's all the weird conceptions about God not allowing his sin in heaven or whatever else. Just not biblical. But here he is. Okay, so, so the Lord answers Satan. Um, Have you considered my servant Job? 
There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So here is the Lord clearly tempting Satan, um, not to do evil, um, but, but just goading Satan into doing evil himself. So God is not tempting Satan to evil, but he does know that Satan is about to propose evil when he goads him by saying that, that Job is so good. So Satan replies, Does Job fear God for nothing? And then God says, uh, or then Satan continues, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, Satan, out of jealousy and all his own evil desires, wants Job to be punished unduly. And God, entirely sovereign over the situation, allows Satan, gives Satan authority over Job for that moment and says, okay, you go and do evil to Job. Go, go do it, right? God has his purposes and here he is ordaining explicitly, like we don't have to make any weird arguments, he's explicitly ordaining evil. However, He's not the one doing evil, and we know from James and the rest of the logical conclusions here that we can't blame the evil on God here, even though he's expressly ordaining evil. So we can't avoid the fact that God is expressly ordaining evil. He's all-powerful. Here's an example of him ordaining evil, yet he is not the evil one. We can conclude here that the agent of evil, Satan in this case, his desires for evil, he's the one to blame. So yes, God is the cause of the evil happening, ultimately, you could say. But you can't blame God for the evil. And therefore, you must blame Satan for his evil desire. God's desire here is for good. We know how Job ends. Job ends up being blessed. We're all the better for it. Um, so it, God's desire is actually good in his goading of Satan to do evil. Similarly, I'll be shorter on this one. First Kings 22, um, prophet is talking about God in his throne room, goading one of the kings to go and, and make a mistake and, and die. Here it is. Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven was standing uh, with him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to march up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one suggested this, and another that. Then a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means? asked the Lord. And he replied, I will go out to be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. You will surely entice him and prevail, said the Lord. Go and do it. So you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has pronounced disaster against you. So notice two things here. One, again, God expressly ordaining this thing, right? All the spirits have to ask for permission, so God is clearly all-powerful. Two, there's some evil spirit. We know that lying, deceiving is evil. Um, and yet, here they are before the Lord's presence, and one of them suggests, I'll, I'll go lie to dece- and deceive um, Ahab, King Ahab, so that he goes and, and makes this mistake, attacks this town, right? Gilead and dies. Um, and the Lord says, okay, in fact, I know you'll prevail. Go and do it. And then Micaiah, the, the prophet here, expressly says what we're saying, and that is that, you, so you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. So, even though God himself was not the spirit that, that was lying, to Ahab, he put, you can say, that the Lord put lying spirits in the mouths of the prophets. So again, God expressly ordained. He actually is the cause of the evil. But do not confuse the cause for the blame. For the guilt. 
for the guilt here. God is not guilty for the lies, but he is the cause, ultimately, of the lying spirits that go into these these, uh, prophets. In fact, as you were reading this, I remembered from all my readings of Kings and Chronicles, in Acts, when the guy dies, when Ahab dies, Ahab dies, it even says here, as they were, as the king disguises himself, so goes into extra effort to yeah. hide his conceal his identity, and the king of Aram says, "Don't fight anyone except the king of Israel." So the guy's hidden, Ahab is hidden. However, a certain man drew his bow without taking special aim, randomly, and he struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So the king said to Sir, turn around, take me out of battle. I'm badly wounded. He died of his wounds later on. So a man shoots randomly into the air, strikes the, the king between a very, 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 very precise spot in his body where there's no armor. Again, they had a lot of armor back then, not just some cloth or leather armor as you see in some movies that are pretty well protected, especially the king. And between the joints of his armor, and then he died later on. So even in this random act, God is sovereign. He accomplished the death of the of Ahab by a random act, quote unquote, from this random soldier too. Yep. Just a quick aside, but I thought it was yeah. very fascinating. So we've all established again, remind you from scripture, that God is all powerful, that he is not to blame for sin, and that he clearly ordains sin. So we're, we're confronting the problem head on here, that God is sovereign over sin. He actually ordains it. He's, he's the one that prescribes it um, to evil people, that he's the one that puts, um, he makes people with evil desires, right? Now, he isn't the one with the evil desires, but he makes ones with evil desires. And some would point to God and say, we would blame him, right? They would disobey James 1 and say, God is the one tempting here. He is the one that lies. So even though he's not the lying spirit and he's not the one that, that tempted Ahab in this way, or he's not the one that punished Job, ultimately he's the one that allowed Satan to punish Job. Ultimately he's the one that sent the lying spirits. And so therefore, he's to blame. He's the evil one. Well, we know again from James 1 and from the rest of Scripture, you can't actually blame God for that because he's not actually the one that did it. He is good. His intentions are good. The intentions of those doing the evil are evil, and therefore the blame goes on the evil ones, not God. So you might not like that. A lot of people don't like that because they are angry about evil events. They're angry that their parents, their children, they themselves are sick or dying, or they're, they're angry at something in their life, or they're angry that other people have been hurt, and so they want to blame something, and they can't blame God even though they know that God ultimately is in charge of everything, and therefore they concoct conclusions where God couldn't help it or has some better plan, whatever else. Um, God, we know, does have good plans for those who love him, for those called according to his purpose, as Romans 8.28 would say. Um, but here's the ultimate conclusion. We're going to conclude this, but more than just us, Scripture concludes this in Romans 9, and we actually already heard God's talk quote it. Um, Romans 9 is a very difficult chapter for some, especially on this argument, but I will say it directly addresses the question. It, it, you don't even have to like connect other parts of the Bible. It directly addresses the question we're talking about today. I encourage you to read it if you have a problem with what we're saying today um, and, and openly see what, what Paul is writing here. Um, it, therefore, this is just Romans 9, he's talking about how people are saved. Um, what shall we say then? This is Romans 9 and 14. Is God unjust? Because he, he decides who does evil, who he saves, who he doesn't. You know, everything is a sovereign over everything is unjust because there's injustice in the world and people who aren't saved are evil. Um, 
back to scripture, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Pause. Again, reference to Pharaoh back in Genesis, where Pharaoh does an evil thing, right? He tries to kill all the Israelites in a massive genocide. Clearly evil, clearly sin, clearly against God's people. But God ordained it so that, his, that God's power would be shown. So once again, God explicitly ordaining evil for the sake of good. As Timothy put it, same action, two different intentions. Yep. I go back to scripture. This is what Paul says. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and might and make his power known, bore with great patience objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? And, and he goes on. But you see, the, the objection here is exactly the objection many people have, and that is that if God ordains evil, how is it still evil? Because ultimately it's being used for good, and therefore it's evil. Or, or isn't God evil when he does these? Both are rejected here because God's plan, as Paul puts it, is to show his power on the people he has wrath on. So his plan, when evil happens, is to punish the evildoers and show everyone his great power and righteousness. The justice, uh -huh. And therefore, that's a good thing. Ultimately, you might not think that's a good thing, but it is good. And God defines it as good, so it is good. And therefore, when he ordains evil, it's for this good purpose. So he is therefore not evil, even though the one doing the evil is punished for it. And similarly, um, the reason for this is that he makes his glory known, known to both the wicked and the righteous. And he has mercy on some and rescues them and, and has good things for their lives. Not because of anything that they've done, but because he's just showing his glory to objects of his mercy. And he just does it. And then you might say, well, wh why does God choose to do um, evil with some people and not save some people and save some people and do good through them? And, and Paul doesn't give you some grand, exact explanation. He just says, God does what he wants to people, right? He mercies who he has mercy on, and he has compassion on who he has compassion on, and he has the right to make some lumps of clay good, and some lumps of clay bad. And so that is our final conclusion today. It's straight from Scripture. That is that, does, cause, does God cause man to sin? Yes, and he's still good. And is not blamed by right. for the sin. So you might be thinking, you might be going through some terrible, terrible situation in your life. You might be saying, why would God allow this to happen to me? A question that's often asked by people who are no longer Christian and have become atheists. Joseph from Genesis could have very well asked that same question. He had more reason than most of us nowadays to ask that. When his brother sold him into slavery, he was falsely accused of rape. He was thrown into jail, again, without a fair trial. He probably 
lived in a very unpleasant state for many, many, many years in jail. He was forgotten about in jail. Mm-hmm. And that too, and insult to injury. And then out of nowhere, of course, by the will of God, he is recognized by the Pharaoh and appointed to a very important and prestigious position in Egypt many, many years later after being sold into slavery. He says this, again, from scripture, from Genesis. I probably should tattoo it in my chest or somewhere, um, the verse. But um, he even explains to his brother, when brothers, when he reveals himself, yes, well, you sold, you sold me into slavery. God did this for good so that he, you, so that we might all be saved, the people of Israel might be saved. So what he's saying is, you meant it for evil, my brothers. You wanted to get rid of me. God used that to many years in the future in a way that I wouldn't, like who in the right mind would think, okay, I'm getting sold into slavery right now. I will be uh, vizier of Egypt 20 years. Right. No one in the right mind would think that. But God did. And he used all these events, not, of course, to shape uh, Joseph in his character because he was always faithful and turning to God in his suffering. And ultimately, God utilized this event, not a reaction, not as someone's like, oh, crap, I sold Joseph. I guess I'm going to have to fight my way through this and see how I can right. precision him. Around. No, all of this planned by God, he says to himself, so that when there will be famine, many, many years later, the Jews would not starve to death and become extinct and rather be brought to Egypt. And then, of course, here we have Pharaoh. Many years later, hundreds of years later, in Egypt, the Egyptians oppress the Jews. Did God not know that that would happen? Well, clearly he did. He also planned to put this specific Pharaoh. And at this time, I forget the name of the Pharaoh. Actually, there are many. They just there, gave the name. Okay, okay, yeah. No, no, there are many. I was saying I have my own uh, hypothesis, oh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going okay. yeah, yeah, to do that right now. God planned for all these events, likewise, for every single one of our lives. God has planned the beginning and the end. As we've said even on our other episode, that he shaped us in the womb of our mothers. Surely we're sinful from birth. Yes, he has numbered our, our, our days. God is fully in control. Nothing surprises him. Whatever trial you and I may be going through right now, he is fully 100% aware of that. Not only he's aware of it, he has decreed it to happen. Right. So now you are left with the option of, are you going to shake your fist at him and think that he has bad intentions towards you? Or are you going to listen or actually like read what he has said and realize that all of my intention, God, all of his intentions are good for those who repent and love him, and that who, who he loves, actually, for those mm-hmm. who love God. In, Ro- in Romans also. So, he is more than happy to extend grace on rebellious people, because we all know we fall short from the glory of God, as we have established from the beginning. Therefore, we must repent, trust in the only vessel who bore our sins, who bore our iniquities on the cross, who suffered unjustly, under the hands of angry sinners, Jesus Christ. And through him, him alone, not our cooperation, not our works, can we have peace and live with the Redeemer, God, for eternity. Yep. And, and so not only is it a biblical position, it's also so much better um, when you know 
that every single bit of suffering that happens to the earth is not wasted. It either shows God's great justice when sinners are destroyed or your own suffering or the suffering of other believers that you know is used for their good too. So it's far better to have a sovereign God who uses suffering and planned it from the beginning, who ordains the evil things in life for good than any of the powerless or unknowing or free will loving gods that you can construct out of scripture. We make inside scripture the true and living God. And that is why we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. We've been uh, Michael Van Behind the Machine, and to my right has been Sebastian the Bookkeeper. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, which are not always as heady, sometimes they're response videos, sometimes they're just to rank ordering religions, and you can go to foundcause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. Although if you want to see our beautiful faces, you can go to Found Cause um, all on YouTube, we're also on Facebook, and we're on Spotify and iTunes, wherever else you might find your podcast. So until next time, we talk about something completely different. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.